Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody. Hashing it out, episode 44. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. And as always, my co-host is here with me, Colin Couchet. Say what up, everybody, Colin. What up, everybody, Colin? Today's episode, we're going to get deep. Um, We're probably going to geek out. It's going to be great. Um, Our guest today is Dr. Russell O'Connor, a software developer at Blockstream. So, um, Let's just, let's just dive into it because I'm excited to see where this where this goes. I don't know exactly what we'll talk about or where it will what road we'll take to end up at the end of this podcast, but I guarantee you're going to have a good time. So, uh, Russell, uh, you want to give us a quick quick introduction as to how you got introduced in this space, um, where you came from, and uh, what you work on now? Uh, yeah. So, um, hi everybody. Thanks for having me on the on your show here. Uh, I I did. Uh, I did some PhD work and uh, postdoc work in formalized mathematics. That's sort of my academic background. And I sort of got interested in Bitcoin in about uh, 2012, I would say. Uh, I sort of always been vaguely interested in digital money. Uh, and so I was excited by this project over here. And I had this little learning experience where I sort of re-implemented sort of the core Bitcoin protocol in, in Haskell, found some issues uh, and stuff like that. And it was a huge learning experience uh, to do that. And then, you know, after a while, uh, fast forward to about 2016, I got hired uh, by Blockstream. And at Blockstream, I'm working on a new, new, new language for blockchains, which I call Simplicity. Uh, and the, we have big plans for formal verification uh, of Simplicity and, and software developed in Simplicity. That's a great start because um, last episode we talked with uh, a few people from Kadena who actually referred you, uh, which is why we, we re- re- reached out to you in the first place. And a lot of it was about or touched on some formal verification and uh, why why Pact or how Pact uses it and how it's built into the Kadena system. Um, but I think we wanted to go a little bit further or maybe get a crash course in the concept of formal verification. And you were the guy they immediately ran to. So... Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, how do I feel about formal verification? <laughs> sure. So how do you feel about them immediately running to you, man? Like, uh, so... uh, I, I talked with uh, Emily from uh, Kadena at the Stanford Blockchain Conference earlier this year, uh, and uh, and we had some nice chats about uh, about formal verification. So uh, I've been thinking about this sort of stuff for for a little while while now. So what kind of stuff are you thinking about? What's going on with Simplicity? Um, is there a formal verification built into that? What's the design approach? And I guess let's start from that perspective and then work our way back to the kind of detail uh, of like, you know, we really want to understand formal verification a lot deeper, what its limitations are, 
um, and just basically get it like kind of an understanding of um, how does this work? Like, what what can we do with it? What are reasonable expectations on this? Uh, yeah, so we should we should maybe start with what formal verification is, right? And um, so I was thinking I would define formal verification as basically using software to verify basically a mathematical theorem, or more generally verify some sort of deduction, whether it's a mathematical deduction or a logical deduction or some other deduction like a type theory deduction, right? Uh, so it's really really using software to do uh, to basically for development and more importantly checking of proofs. So in order to do form, formal verification, you really need you can really only verify mathematical theorems, right? And so the first thing you have to do is translate whatever question you have into an actual mathematical statement. Uh, and for taking simplicity as an example, the way we do this is that we give formal semantics to our programming language uh, in the proof assistant that I use. Um, and, uh, and then from there, with the formal semantics, you can translate questions about your software into actual mathematical questions, which you can reason about. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, but to, to me, it seems like uh, that's kind of difficult for me to like. All right, so I'm I'm not a, I'm not a mathematician. Okay, I'm a computer scientist at bachelor's level. Okay, uh, but you know, been programming for almost two decades now. Um, but for me, it's like how how do I do that and how do I know what's right and wrong and like what what kind of things can I do with formal verification and um, and like what are my limits and what are good use cases for that I guess these are all like really broad questions but yeah. I, I don't know how to answer them right now and I was kind of hoping maybe you could help well um, so when you have a piece of software you can you generally have invariants uh, which can be stated as mathematical theorems, right? Or you have some sort of uh, other mathematical definition of your object, right? So uh, taking one of the examples that I have in simplicity as one of our sort of uh, research uh, aspects of, of, of developing simplicity, we have an implementation of, of SHA-256 essentially, or the SHA-256 compression function written in simplicity. Now you write the code for that uh, and simplicity is a very low level language and we can talk about that more, but it's think of it as kind of like an assembly level language, right? So you write this, you know, something that's similar to an assembly program uh, in simplicity and it's supposed to be the SHA-256 compression function, but you know, how do you know that it's actually computing the SHA-256 compression function? Now, the usual answer is to, you run some test cases and that's useful for, for getting rid of bugs, but you can't be absolutely certain uh, that you've actually eliminated all the bugs over here, and with blockchains, you know, eliminating bugs is 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 a very important problem, specifically, right? Because when you post your 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 commit to your program on the blockchain, there's really no going back at that point in time, right? So you have to uh, you really have to be able to to reason out every possible situation that your program will be in before uh, you you sort of commit to it on on the blockchain, and so. Um, so in order to check the simplicity program, uh, what we do is we take the specification that was done um, by the by some folks at uh, Princeton uh, who have a formal verification of the SHA-256 compression function uh, in C, uh, and we take their same specification that they used for their C program when they were verifying OpenSSL's version of SHA-256, and by using the same specification, 
we can prove that our simplicity program using its formal semantics uh, has meets exactly the same specification as uh, that their proof for the open SSL uh, program does right so like what open what SHA-256 is is not exactly a mathematical statement but we do have a mathematical statement written down by these folks at Princeton and now we know by combining their proof with their work with open SSL and our work with with simplicity that whatever function simplicity computes is exactly the same function that open SSL computes for its SHA-256 uh, function, right? And so, uh, in this way, we gain some, some, uh, a lot of, of, we gain a lot of uh, uh, belief in the correctness of our our shaft two fifty six program in simplicity. So, if I could maybe restate some of that backwards um, in a different, in a different way, um, when you want to formal verify something, formally verify something, or the reason for doing it is, so you build a language that one can can be formally verified when you make something in it. And then you make something in it. In your case, you, you made the SHA-256 SHA compression function. And you say, well, did I do this right? And you said previously, what people, what most people do or what the standard is for trying to make secure things in programming is you run a suite of tests that say, if it does this, then it should get this. If it does this, then it should get this. And the more you do that, the more code coverage you have or test cases you put in, the more confidence you have that the thing that you built does what it's supposed to do. Um, formal verification does that, but does it really make you um, run that many tests? You don't. You're not forced to get all 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 of the code coverage. What you do typically, from what I understand, is you uh, list a bunch of invariants. Like this thing will always be true, or this thing will always not be true. And the formal verifier runs through all possibilities. Um, and if it checks out, it says, yeah, it does what it's supposed to do based on the invariance you've given me. Is that, is that a decent way to like a restate you just told me? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, um, so test coverage, you know, lets you execute a few inputs, right? Uh, so the way formal verification works, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily test all cases. It doesn't need to test all cases. Uh, we analyze the source code itself to in a, something get a something that's equivalent to complete code coverage right you know we do reasoning to cover all cases to show that on all cases this function produces some expected behavior uh, which in this case is producing the same behavior as open ssl does okay awesome for one that's just awesome the fact that we can do this um and i would, i'd imagine my, my immediate um thought process of the implications of this for at least for in the blockchain space is um, like you said, when you submit something to a blockchain and then people interact with it or depend on it, then you need to be pretty damn sure it works the way you think it works. Um, as we've seen in the Ethereum space um, and the, inter uh, the subtleties of not knowing people can take money where they weren't supposed to based on um, people thinking that things work the way they should have and they didn't. Uh, and I think this is just the case across all blockchains. The more you know or the more confidence you have about what you're submitting into a blockchain, the better, because you want the thing to work the way it's supposed to work, because it's really, really hard to change elsewhere. Is that the main motivation for doing formal verification, at least in the blockchain space? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that's the case. I think this is uh, this is one of those cases where, where I think formal verification, verification really shines. Um, it's, it's sort of very expensive to do. Like the process is... Is, is really time consuming, right? Um, but here 
we really have the payoffs, right? Because you cannot, you know, you cannot go back and correct errors, right? There's no, there's no good security upgrade mechanism when you have when when mistakes have been made in software uh, on the blockchain. Whereas, you know, in a lot of other cases, uh, even like even if you're a NASA, right, you can still upload patches to your your Mars rovers and stuff like that. Uh, and so, uh, in in some ways, this goes beyond, you know. The, the type of situation that even aerospace is in, in some cases. Uh, and I think it's also important to, to understand that formal verification doesn't have to be an all or nothing proposition, right? So the example I gave here, we've had sort of complete um, code coverage for, for the SHA-256 implementation, but there are other situations where you can sort of get this partial correctness, right? You prove some of the invariants, maybe not everything, right? But you might be able to prove that, you know, if you're doing some sort of fancy smart contract that no funds move under except under some small list of conditions, right? And that might not enumerate the entire behavior, right? But can really constrain uh, and limit the the scope of bugs. See, that's 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 where I think it really shines. Um, so it, to me, like you know, when you're developing a large software application, it seems um, it seems daunting to want to do that for literally every everything, um, you know. But but to verify that the transactions, for instance, that you're getting out of uh, you're putting in uh, kind of match what you're getting out. Uh, those are those are important. Um, those are important things because consistency is just key to a lot of what we're doing. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad you could do partials. I'm kind of surprised, and I brought this up on the last episode with uh, Kadena, um, is that uh, I haven't seen a lot of this implemented in just standard languages, um, meaning that I could totally see the situation where a Python decorator can uh, force a formal verification of whatever function it's decorating. Um, and yet I don't see those kind of things out there. Maybe they do, but I haven't seen them. Um, what has been the barrier to entry for people trying to uh, implement this kind of stuff? And where is this uh, status on the research at the moment? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a bit of a, like from my point of view, it's, it's kind of mysterious, right? But the popular languages, programming languages we see out there like C, Python, uh, even Rust and stuff like that. Um, they don't have formal semantics, right? So without formal semantics, we can't translate what a program is into a mathematical statement. Um, and uh, and even in those cases where we sort of have, have partial semantics or something like that, right? The semantics for these languages are incredibly complicated, right? Uh, I've been looking a little bit in formalizing the C programming language uh, for some other work related to simplicity that we can talk about. Um, and uh, and like, there's like giant debates <laughs> sort of in the C community about the providence of memory allocations uh, and when you're allowed to dereference something to get a value and when when it's undefined behavior, right? Like there's some sort of some very fundamental questions about how C operates is actually not really well defined by the the sort of informal English specification, and that makes it really hard to 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 move forward on formal verification of of these common software programming languages. Would you say that's a good reasoning for, I would almost call the rise of functional programming languages over the past maybe five years is the fact that because they have, they seem to be easier to build semantics around so you can build verification around them as well. Well, I, I would like to think that, but I'm not too sure it's actually true, right? Even like I'm a big Haskell programmer and I have been for a long time, right? But uh, Haskell doesn't have formal semantics, even though uh, back in 1992, when it was being developed, that was one of the goals of, of the language development was to have formal semantics. Um, but that said, like uh, ML has sort of 
you know, sort of informal formal semantics, uh, sort of a, a very really detailed sort of mathematical uh, in in the sense of written down mathematics uh, specification of, of of standard ML, right? Uh, and that's one of the few few programming languages that you might encounter that actually has formal semantics. So it's a little bit closer. Um, but I do agree that functional languages are easier to reason about, and that's sort of why simplicity has uh, sort of functional semantics associated with it. Um, because uh, when you have a procedural language like C or something like that, uh, the state of the art there is is whore uh, triples, uh, which is sort of preconditions and postconditions, and with the loop invariance. Um, and then, then reasoning about these whore triples is a little bit awkward, and we can talk about the frame rule and what makes it awkward about that. Uh, where God, I haven't heard that term since formal methods of models in college. Like yes, that's something yes. you just don't think about outside well, it, of the outside of that academic space. Yeah, these, these whore triples are very like I've done some 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 work on it when I'm reasoning about C programs. These whore triples are very tricky to to reason about because you have to sort of line things up properly. The nice thing about functional programming is that it has sort of these uh, it allows you to do equational reasoning where you can just simply take, you know, your your expression as a function, right? Find some sort of bit in the middle, right? And you can substitute equals for equals, right? So you sort of just massage things like you're doing algebra in high school. It's a little bit more complicated, but but the but the the type of, of, of work is, is very similar. So you massage things to get it in the right form, and then you do a substitution of something equal to something else, and you keep on going back and forth with massaging like this. And this is uh, this ability to do substitution for your reasoning makes uh, formal formal reasoning about uh, functional programming a lot easier than than procedural programming, in my opinion. Before we before we dive into too many tangents, because um, it's, it's going to be very easy to do so, I want to try and bring it back to the idea of what does it mean to have formal verification on 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 Bitcoin, right? Because I think when most people think about this, they think about it in the context of maybe Ethereum because they have the EVM. And the AVM has bytecode in which you can then, you know, reason about what it's supposed to do and how it works and so on and so forth. It's I think it's easier to make the analogy of the computer um, and a machine that steps that steps, you know, stepwise in time. Whereas Bitcoin, it's not so easy to think about that, or that's not the the general idea that I think the the majority of people think about. What does formal verification do for for a network like Bitcoin, and and what can you then? Um, I mean, is it, is it different? Does it just make the system that exists now more secure or does it expand its possibilities and what it's capable of doing? Well, I mean, the question is whether you want to talk about Bitcoin as it is today or maybe some hypothetical Bitcoin where we can integrate this simplicity work that I've been doing on or a Bitcoin-like sidechain. Um, like Ethereum and Bitcoin have sort of made different decisions about uh global state and, and transactions and how they interact with each other, right? Basically, Bitcoin yeah. has no global state, right? Um, but you can, if we had a more sophisticated smart contract language than, than what Bitcoin currently offers, right? Uh, you can do some very interesting things uh, with smart contracts through this mechanism called covenants, where you sort of get this, where the transactions can propagate local state information about what's going on in its corner of the world. Uh, and that, um, and, then, and that's stuff you could reason about, right? You could sp formally specify uh, the Bitcoin script language and give it semantics. And if it had covenants, we can start reasoning about transactions with covenants that uh, allow you to propagate state from, from, from inputs to outputs. 
Um, and there, there's lots of, lots of things we could do in, in that space there. Does that answer your question? Yes, I would like a, it to be more I'm approachable actually, to the general audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I got questions about that. So let's. So you're building a language uh, smart contract, a language that uh, would enable. Well, I don't know. Is it smart contract even a fair statement here? Is it a full, fully qualified, or is it just a simple script language which allows for automated transactions? The reason I asked that make a difference uh, differentiation between that is that to me it seems like a global state would actually be a uh, prerequisite for something to be a smart contract. Um, and uh, I, I don't know enough about how, I mean, I know how Bitcoin handles, uh, you know, um, you know, UTXO and stuff. And I, you know, I never really done to me. Yeah. There's no, there's no global state there um, because I'm not really heavy in the Bitcoin space. If that makes sense. I kind of joined with Ethereum um, in 2015. Uh, this is when I got interested in cryptocurrencies is because I read the white paper, um, the Daleks white paper. Um, but uh you know, if there's no global state, like how do you manage just uh, simple contractual, you know, asset transfer or something like that? Is is this just like an automated transactional language, or is it actually a fully qualified script? Uh, 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 sorry, smart contract language. Yeah. So, um, so simplicity that I'm designing, right? So something that could be put into Bitcoin or or a Bitcoin sidechain, right? Um, it, it operates on, on this sort of transactional le level over here, right? So I sort of think of 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 uh, the simplicity language sort of forms the atoms of what would create you would create a smart contract language out of, right? And then because a smart contract is more than just a single something a single script in the transaction, it's usually uh, it usually involves multiple of these these uh, little script programs interacting with each other. Uh, through a series of transactions, right? So I like to think of smart contracts as a little bit broader, uh, more encompassing probably several transactions. Like you can think about the Lightning Network on, on Bitcoin as a smart contract, uh, very light, so a fairly light smart contract, right? But it involves, you know, you have these breach contracts and these breach conditions and you have these channel updates and stuff like that. And the, some of the transactions are off-chain and some of them are on-chain, right? But that whole mechanism together uh, encompasses what's what we would call the sort of the smart contract for for the Lightning uh, protocol. Uh, so so Bitcoin script and simplicity they sort of operate on on the transaction level. It's sort of like an atom of a uh, of a smart contract. Um, but the but simplicity and then maybe some sort of hypothetical extension to to Bitcoin script, right? What you can do uh, using this mechanism of covenants, if, if, if we add that to Bitcoin, is that you can constrain the output to be based to have, an, you can constrain the output script to be something that uh, can be computed from the input script data, right? And so if you have some propagation, you can propagate information like um, there's a very simple vault covenant that says that uh, uh, it gives you this sort of two transaction phase to to release funds, where you first have to broadcast something onto the blockchain, where you sort of start the clock on this on the vault, and then after say 24 hours or however you want, then you're allowed to move it on to, you know, whoever wants to receive those funds. And basically, an escrow. Yeah. Well, no, it's 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 sort of a time lock. It's 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 sort of like a a time locked vault, right? Gotcha. Okay. Right. You could. Yeah. All right. Because. Uh, Right, it's just right, but it is a little bit escrow, right? So you have this one condition, 
uh, where it pays out to the destination fund after 24 hours. And then you have this recovery condition where you have a recovery key in case some malicious person is trying to move your funds. At least you can be notified on the blockchain and have 24 hours to respond to try to recover your funds from unauthorized access. So that's the idea of the vault over there. Uh, but to implement the vault, right, you need to uh, have this second transaction force the output to only go to the intended recipient after the 24-hour period, right? And that commitment has to be done in the first phase, right? And so we propagate this state information using a mechanism called covenants, where we force that the output script uh, of the second one, uh, of sort of the intermediate transaction, uh, is defined such that it forces the output script uh, to be some particular value, right? So Bitcoin script today can't force anything about the outputs, right? So it doesn't have covenants, right? But the simplicity language is designed to, to sort of give you this covenant feature where you can ask, you can actually program what the outputs of a transaction are, are allowed to be. So, but then that, that so uh, like you said, I just want to kind of boil that down. So what I said was actually accurate. It's not a fully qualified smart contract language, but it contains a, a subset of uh, procedures which can, uh, can enable more complex types of transactions from currency to currency. But it can't do things like uh, organize value assets or store things like non-fungible tokens. Is that correct? Well, I mean, you could you can store this information in, in the outputs in some sort of you know some sort of format uh, of data, right? And it's up to everyone. And you can enforce things like uh, you know this 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 um, this output. This, this extra data represents a token and it cannot, can or cannot be subdivided and stuff like that. Uh, so you could, in principle, do this sort of, this sort of token programming stuff on top of, 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 of the, the trans transaction mechanism. I'm not too sure it would be a good idea, right? But it's totally plausible. Yeah, because it doesn't sound like availability would be there. It would probably be off-chain. Is that a misunderstanding of what you just said or not? You know, the, all this data would be, would be on-chain, right? And you would ha just have this program oh, okay. that restricts the output and then you you basically restrict the the next outputs program to have a copy of your program, right? So this program self perpetuates forever, enforcing this covenant that this this particular bit of token cannot be divided or 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 has followed some particular rules about where the outputs are allowed to go or or can be destroyed under certain conditions or something like that. Uh, I see what it is. So like it's kind of like um, you're you're changing the scripting language a bit to to, to be able to. Um, handle the logic of validating what a valid transaction is based on these rules. And then for valid transactions, you're encoding the inputs and outputs in such a way to store information. Is that? Yeah. Okay. That's absolutely right. And this, and you can do this without global state, right? Basically all the, all the information that you need to keep that that's relevant for you, you have to keep a copy of it in your UTXO, right? Yeah. And then propagate it forward and stuff like that. And the nice thing about that I like about the Bitcoin mechanism is that it's very reorg safe, right? You know, because because it's only the transactions that are linked together. It doesn't actually look at the the headers of the blockchain. It doesn't have access to that data, right? So during a reorg, it just means that your the pieces of the puzzle, you know, which are these transactions that have to slot together appropriately, still slot together appropriately, and what you're doing with your transactions is independent of what's going on with other people's transactions. So it makes reasoning a lot simpler. They just follow the chain of the UTXOs as opposed to the entire the entire blockchain. Yes, exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, the next question about that is like, what's the the like? Is it efficient enough? Like you said, like I would, you know, you wouldn't do some of these things 
um, on the blockchain. So like, what, what's the scope of things you would like to do with Simplicity? Like say for instance, these things get passed, we get the upgrades we need so that Simplicity uh, can be used. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question, right? It's a little bit unanswered, but if we want to be optimistic, um, uh, have you heard of, of of Taproot and and Mast in in the context of, of Bitcoin? Mast is fascinating. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. So Mast is this Merkleized abstract syntax tree. It's a term that I I, I coined a while back, um, and uh, uh, and the idea is that when you're when you commit to a blockchain program, you have to like you have all these conditions that you're considering and stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to actually executing the, the program, right? You know, only some of these conditions are going to wind up being executed in whatever particular circumstances you're in, right? And the observation is, is all that code that doesn't get executed can be pruned away, right? Because it's not executed, it doesn't have to be revealed, uh, and you can just sort of reveal the commitment to the branch of that execution. Uh, but because it's not actually executed, you can sort of just omit that data. Uh, and that vastly improves the efficiency, right? Because not all of the program has to go on chain. Um, but we can go a little bit further from that by realizing that uh, in many smart contracts, you have a bunch of parties interacting with each other, right? And you could, it's fairly reasonable to add, you know, as one of your conditions be that uh, if everyone agrees to the state update, you know, the, the next transaction, uh, then we can all just digitally sign the update and, and post it to the blockchain and, and reveal basically none of the program uh, if there's no dispute. And using Schnorr signatures, all those, those multiple signatures can be combined into a single signature and put on chain. And using Taproot, you can do it in such a way that uh, actually just becomes a normal single signature transaction on, on Bitcoin, right? So as long as everyone agrees to what the next update is going to be, uh, then we can just uh, put this everyone can come together and save some money by signing everything. It gets merged together using Schnorr signatures into a single signature, and that one signature goes on chain. Um, and because we have like, a, you, know, a, a, you know, a deterministic programming language, right? Everyone knows what the output outcome of that smart contract is going to be, right? So there's almost no point in disputing what the outcome is. You just run it on a computer and you know what it's going to be. There's, there's little point in disputing it. So there's a lot of uh, incentive for people to come together and save money and sign what the output is, you know, what the next transaction is going to be. Uh, and then under this situation, everything is really efficient, right? Because everything becomes on-chain, just a single signature. It definitely turns the, the, the idea of the blockchain into more of a, this is a ledger of, of, of truth. Um, where the majority of the actual computation is done outside of it. So like right now, um, we're storing a lot in the blockchain relative to what we're doing with the blockchain. This is offloading a lot of that computation into interesting and efficient cryptography so that what actually gets stored is relatively small to what you're actually doing. Like for instance, like Merkleized abstract syntax trees can encode an entire program, but what gets stored is only the execution path that, that, that happens. Right, and then usually that execution path can be nothing, right? So we think of this as sort of, uh, we, we, we treat the, the, the smart contracting system or, or the scripting system as a sort of a judiciary system, a judge that will like determine the outcome of your, uh, of your, if you have a dispute, what the outcome will be, right? But it's a fully deterministic judge, right? So even before entering the courtroom of the blockchain, everyone knows what the outcome of the judge is going to be, right? Because you can just look at 
look up the inputs, run the judge yourself, and look at the outputs, right? So everyone has this option to settle out of court where they all mutually sign thing and save a lot of money, uh, right? And there's no point in going through the court uh, because everyone knows what the outcome is going to be. So nobody actually goes through the, the judging system, right? But it's still, uh, as far as the game theory is important, <laughs> it's important to have that that threat of judgment in place so that it promotes, uh, you know, incentivizes everyone to go settle out of court, right? And, you know, uh, if things go well, we'll find out that basically everyone settles out of court always, right? Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, it, it, it feels as though um, the burden of minors gets, gets drastically increased based on their, uh, they're gonna have to do a lot more validating. Is that not the case? Or they they get they get transactions they could submit it that that like, work. They don't have to do all like that. All work. the parties come together, right? And they're like they come together to make us a uh, Schnorr signature, right? Ah, okay. Right. The the miners don't even know. Like, what's interesting about this is that not not, not even the miners. Like, nobody else knows what the contract was, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you basically commit a Merkle root of the program. Uh, which is hashed up. You don't know what everyone else doesn't know what the preimage is other than the participants in, in the smart contract, right? So you get privacy, right? You get uh, you get small data on the blockchain, basically no data in the, in the common case other than a single signature, um, and uh, and you get you know the full ability of whatever uh, smart contracting programming language you have have underneath. You also have audit ability. Would you say it's it's fair to say that for ninety five percent of what we're doing in Ethereum, we're doing it wrong? Because based off what you said, that that sounds that sounds sounds like the case. That that I would agree with that statement. <laughs> All right, I saw it never even dawned on me to that 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 approach, and I, I'm still going to probably have to spend some time re-listening to this very episode and doing some personal research to kind of grok my head around how. Well, let's go back a little bit, work. Colin. But what did we just cool. say? I think I came from this. I came from this discussion with uh, a little bit more background information on what these things are. What did we just say that may need a little more context for the technical, but like more naive audience for, for, for this conversation? I'm still trying to grok how the whole system's put together. So I, I get I get the off-chain, uh, you know, what I don't understand is quite where the judiciary system is. If you already said something like the there's a judiciary system, but it's done um it's done through the court and rule, but that court and rule is like on chain, I assume. It, it, I, I mean, this yeah. is a lot of information. So if that's on chain, then there would be potentially yes. a, a griefing scenario there. And it also there would be potentially a minor cost there. Yeah, um, the griefing so is like, an issue with this, right? Uh, right. And, and so like one of the participants could be like, well, I'm going to lose all my, you know, I've seen the outcome of the judge, right? I'm going to lose everything, right? So I'm not going to sign this. I might as well make you pay all my fees, right? Uh, and that is an issue uh, that, that makes this system a little bit imperfect. It's also uh, the big fish, little fish scenario where the big fish could just grief little fish because they can and because yeah. it's like, fuck you, haha. So um, there, there might be ways around it, right? We can uh, post bonds, right? And so that if you settle out of court, you get your bond back. Uh, and so now the person has some, uh, the griefer has some incentive to, to, to participate in the, in the multi-sig in order to get their bond back. Uh, and whether that is practical or not, it will depend on specific applications, right? So this isn't necessarily a perfect situation. Maybe not everyone will always uh, go go off chain, right? But there's there's probably a lot of motivation to go go off chain. And I would say that 95% of the cases, this would be an okay scenario, especially for small transactions. Like it, you know, it's just not as crucial. You know, um, I, I don't think I would. 
like to depend on something like this necessarily for larger stuff, mostly because I'd like to go through the quarter rule every time, uh, where the value being exchanged is so significant that, you know, just let it let it always go through that that quarter rule. Well, I mean, there's this again, no point in going to the quarter rule, even for large, large things. You all know what the outcome is going to be because you can run the, run the, the program yourself beforehand. Right. Uh, there, this is not because we don't have this global state dependence like Ethereum has. Right. Everything depends on locally the information in the transaction. Right. You know, you know what the outcome is beforehand. Right. So, right. You know, if you've put up a bond, then you might as well just sign it and get your bond back because you, you're if it goes on chain, it's just going to cost you money and everyone else money, too. Mm, truth, truth. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah. And, and if the bond is sufficiently weighted, I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be weighted that much. But uh, yeah. yeah, it would always be worth it, uh, especially on if you're trying to do a lot of transactions very frequently. I mean, this is just something you just want to operate as a given um, because, you know, the, the cost of not being a good actor is so high. And and but again, that kind of like brings me into the point of like, yeah, there's there's the optimal happy path, but I still see a potential for unhappy paths here. Um, and so, and, you know, honestly, when you mentioned that you heard our episode with Dan Robinson, I mean, he, he kind of saw this, a similar thing, um, with, uh, uh, hash time lock contracts. Um, yeah. just, there's a lot of potential for, um, things we miss, um, things that, that could socially make sense and mathematically not make sense. If that makes sense, like there's like an the emotional aspect. Absolutely. It's just yeah. the opposite. Right. So like, <laughs> We don't have covenants in Bitcoin today, right? And everything I'm talking about is a little bit of speculation, and we'll have to see it works out, right? But I think there's there's a lot of potential here. Absolutely. So I want to get back into formal verification a bit because that's that's also extremely interesting part of this and part of what makes it kind of work in that if somebody hands you a contract, um, you would like some guarantee that the contract isn't freaking buggy. Um, and one way that assists in that. Now, it wouldn't be a full assist, but one way to assist in the auditing process and the ability to con confirm that the contract does what it's supposed to do. Uh, mind you, I'm, I think there are ways that I could actually kind of obfuscate, you know, yeah. yes, it's formally verified, but I didn't I didn't put this one check in there. So you yeah. didn't know that it what, that it do, does this one thing, but it yeah. at least it at least says that the stuff that's formally verified is correct, um, yeah, so which is beyond can... what we currently have is, you know, um, look at the parity hacks. Um, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, to get back to the formal verification side, I think that's really what makes what you're doing work. And uh, go ahead with what you were going to say. Yeah, like so So we have these software systems to do formal verification, right? And uh, and you can write a proof and present it to all your, your counterparties to show that, you know, this is the details of what we've checked about this contract, right? But I must admit that the tools that we have today are maybe not necessarily adversarially robust against an adversary, right? So the tools that we have today are really good for your own information. Like if you're not trying to exploit the system, right? It's very good for like uh, verifying that you have checked all the conditions that you need to check for for whatever whatever contract that you're trying to implement, right? Uh, but as far as convincing everyone otherwise, we're not quite there yet. There's a lot of like tricks you can play with these systems to give an illusion of proving one thing while actually proving another thing. Uh, but exactly, uh, yeah. but unfortunately, you know, formal verification as what we have today is 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 what we have today, right? And obviously, there's going to be more room for improvement uh, in the but future. But that said, it's better than what we currently have, meaning that. Um, for instance, I think you could very easily formally verify re-entrancy, right? Yes. Like yeah. that's been a problem like over and over again. <laughs> like 
Huge problem, reentry attacks. Okay, well, you designed it stupid-headedly. Put in a, a reentry, like ver formal verification prevention thing. And whether or not they do a nefarious contract, which has a little backdoor built in, um, that's up to an auditor to kind of look at still. But that's the case we're in now, only you're removing things for the auditor to check. Or at least narrowing down stuff. Uh, that's right. I think you that's have useful. to verify that the, the theorem being proved in your formal verification is in fact the theorem that that you think is being proved and they haven't used like no, the notation mechanism in, in, in your system to confuse you and make you think you're proving something else. Um, yeah, so, but I mean, so I, I said this in one of my presentations, right? You know, formal verification is the best we can do today. And even that might not be the not enough, right? But it is literally the best we can do today. I, I kind of find like a, an interesting aspect of this um, is that these systems, these networks that are trying to implement formal verification which in the blockchain space are almost incentivizing the research to be done to improve them, right? Um, like I don't like what other contexts that are so are, are, are as dire as a tremendous amount of money on the line uh, than blockchain networks to then improve the way we use these things so we can we can use them in an adversarial settings. I, I feel like that's in, in a similar way that I feel Zcash is only created to push the idea of zero knowledge snarks. Like this is like we, these networks give you a reason to push the research in a, in a way that's never been done before. Is that, would you agree with that? I, I agree with that. Like, look, if you're going to put, you know, $100 million into your, your you know, parity wallet or a billion dollars or whatever it is, right? You know, maybe you should spend $10,000 to do the effort of formal verification. I'm not actually convinced that has been necessarily happening, right? But I feel like the motivation should be there. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. But there, there are, I'd say over the past year and a half, year to year and a half, the security industry associated with blockchain has grown substantially. Um, maybe because it reached a threshold of legitimacy where real security experts started, started saying, okay, it's now worth the time for me to look at these things. So I'll bring my expertise and tooling to the space and try and make it better. Or, uh, I mean, it's supply and demand, you know, <laughs> like, or demand. Like we, we got to also a certain point where we realized that these things are incredibly buggy and they need a security eye. And so people started, you know, going out for them because a lot of money was growing. So like it's, it's, a, it's a number of factors, but the nascency of the entire technology means that like, of course, it's not going to be ultra secure because that's not who the people are who, who started it. Uh, yeah. And, and I fear that some of these languages uh, have been designed in such a way to make this sort of security analysis and, and, and formal verification not necessarily easy. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's definitely true. Like solidity as a language is not is not a good language for formal verification. That's why most of the tools that do it translate it to some intermediate representation so they can then run semantics on it and and try and prove things, right? Right. So the, the, the little bit of tooling that I've seen in the Ethereum land can handle programs that have no loops in them, right? So, which is a fairly big caveat. And maybe things have gotten better over. They've gotten better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's come a long way over the, just the past year alone. I, I I guarantee it. But still, it's not it's not where it needs to be. And I, and there's a lot of work trying to move it towards something else that's easier to do these types of things on. But I'd say uh, a lot of the space is learning a lot of lessons. Yeah, that's why I think uh, sort of a functional oriented language like like uh, Simplicity is is going to be a better foundation for moving this forward. That it'll be a lot cheaper. Uh, to do a verification of a simply simplicity program than, than these other systems. The, the, the other side of that coin, or the, I guess the counter argument that someone would have for, 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 for the Bitcoin space is that there's an ability to move. And 
I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make a loaded question here, but it's been shown in the past that big, changing Bitcoin protocol is very, very difficult, precisely because of the lack of leadership. Like, well, I don't want to say it that way. That's a, that's a poor way of saying it. The decentralized nature of how governance is done or however you want to call it, right? Changing the protocol is very difficult. So yeah, yeah. how do you see like the movement of these things and the adoption of what is like, in my opinion, unarguably if, if efficiencies, like added efficiencies into the protocol when it's very difficult to change the protocol itself? Well, like like if we were to try to add simplicity to, to Bitcoin, it would be a, a massive change, right? Requiring a massive amount of vetting, right? And I don't think it'll happen anytime soon. And this is where the sort of element side chains uh, uh, like being developed at, at Blockstream yeah. are useful, right? It allows us to experimentally run things that are pegged to Bitcoin, whether it's elements or our liquid network, right? And if we can, we can put simplicity in there, we're not risking the whole network, we can vet it, we can find out, you know, problems with it, we can take our time to release it early and maybe backfill some of these this formal verification as we go and we learn, right? Um, but I'm I'm actually optimistic that if that all works out well, right, uh, we will have a proposal for Bitcoin that is even more vetted than any of the previous changes that we've had in the past. It'll take a long time to get there, right, and to, to put in that formal verification uh, because there's more to formal verification than just verifying simplicity programs, right? We have to verify the implementation of the simplicity interpreter on the other hand, mm. right? Because it's no good uh, to have formal semantics that you verify your programs with too if your interpreter is uh, incorrectly implemented, right? Because when it comes to the consensus code, right? What you have written down in your in your C program for your interpreter is the real semantics of your language. Yeah not what you've written down in your, your assistant, right? <laughs> and so true. if those things don't match, then I'm afraid that it's the C program that is 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 the, by definition, the correct one rather than maybe what you intended. I interviewed uh, um, JJ from Purse and Bitcoin a long time ago when he first introduced the idea of Bitcoin. And he had quite a few like funny stories about like going through uh, Bitcoin core and trying to figure out how the consensus engine worked and just had, you know, like, based on how with the implementation, which was basically the spec, regardless of what people wrote down, he had to do a lot of funny things just to get it to, to be in consensus with, with, with the rest of the network. Oh yeah, there, there's, there are many funny things in Bitcoin and, uh, and it makes me sad. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess a, a, another point that I wanted to ask that is, so when we interviewed Kadena and they talked about formal verification, like where does the proof live? How does that get passed around and how do you know it's 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 the right thing is it is it is that completely outside the blockchain do you plan on putting the proof inside of of the blockchain in some way shape or form is it passed around in a way that's trustless and permissionless like how does that work well, it would it would be entirely outside of the blockchain right so before it comes to verifying your uh your simplicity programs that would be passed around between the participants uh which would have to sort of verify verify that those 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 uh, specifications, uh, those formal specifications are what what they should be and, and cover all the cases that they're supposed to cover and they're not trying to do something that, or maybe the different participants will independently prove the correctness of the same uh, simplicity program. So those those are amongst itself and nobody else needs to know whether it's the miners or anyone else in the system. Nobody needs to know about the details of, of the correctness of the program. Uh, when it comes to the correctness of the simplicity interpreter, right, that would be sort of in a GitHub repository alongside the, the living with the code, right? And, uh, and as part of the build process for building a Bitcoin, you would probably optionally, but generally want to run the 
the correctness checker to prove that that the uh, the implementation of your simplicity interpreter or whatever uh, in fact is implementing the formal semantics. Well, I mean, technically, if the same code is implemented, I mean, the hash of that code would say that, hey, these are the same code. Uh, oh, then you need to run your formal verification on it just like you normally would. And if that passes, then your interpreter at least is working um, the same way that they say that theirs is working. What kind of other flaws would we be looking at uh, outside of that? Um, I mean, other than specification errors, right? Um, and what's the fun thing is that sort of the formal specification of like simplicity acts as an interface, right? We have on one side, we have simplicity programs that make reference to it when we prove the correctness of those simplicity programs. And the other side of the interface, we have the simplicity interpreter, which is showing that the C implementation implements those formal uh, semantics of simplicity. But what's interesting about interface is that when you merge those things together, the interface disappears, right? And you get a proof that the C program will execute and produce your, when, when you pass your simplicity program to this C interpreter, it will get the results that you proved about your, um, uh, of your, uh, your results that you proved about your, your program, uh, independent of whether the formal semantics of simplicity are, are like correct or not, right? Because it's sort of, Whatever the formal semantics of simplicity are, you know, the C program implements it, and you've proved your program is correct with respect to it. So even if those that intermediate had an error in it or something like that, you still get this guarantee that your program will execute correctly when interpreted by the interpreter. So I want to try and rephrase a lot of the conversation we previously just had um, in terms of, I think, uh, language that a lot of people might understand based on the current narrative going on, and that is layer two solutions, right? Um, with any layer two solution, you basically have uh, the blockchain and then something that lives on top of it and the API, a API between them, how they communicate. Uh, like, like with the Lightning Network, your API is you make a, con you, you make a transaction, it starts off a channel, and then you do with the two other people, and you do a bunch of transactions um, off chain between the parties involved with that thing until they're happy with it, with, with the state of things. You make another transaction to say, this is how we've settled. So you've turned a bunch of transactions with you know various parties, depending on what you're talking about, and into basically two transactions. Now that's called scaling. Um, and, and the way you interact with that is just standard Bitcoin transactions, basically. So you don't need to add anything to Bitcoin to make this make this system work. What all of this is, what we just recently talked about, is basically the same thing. You just need a few modifications to the base layer blockchain for that um, API to work correctly. But in the end, you have a tremendous amount more confidence and flexibility on what you do in that layer uh, in the meantime of starting it and ending it. Is that is that all correct? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I just would add that you don't necessarily have to aggregate a series of transactions here, right? Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, so any smart contract you could sort of think of as, as something that connects a second layer to, to the Bitcoin base layer, right? Mm -hmm. And by extending the semantics of the scripting language to support things like covenants, right? You uh, increase the uh, ability, you, you increase what sort of smart contracts you can express, right? And, and typically you'll sort of be doing some sort of aggregation on the second layer, right? But it could be even something simpler that just a single transaction that you're negotiating um, uh, but you still sort of, you still get that some sort of compression if you use something like MAST, where you just uh, agree on the outcome and you make, 
you know, a single signature that's that's added together with, with Schnorr signatures, uh, right? So you sort of get that compression, even though you're just talking about a single transaction by, you know, doing the execution of the smart contract off-chain and deciding that you're not going to, that, that it's just in your, your interest to do a single signature rather than enforcing the contract on-chain, which is always the threat that's there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um... Little, little more down in the weeds is kind of where my question is right now, um, and this is kind of like tangential. Um, it's still informal verification. I, 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 we had a conversation with Cadena, as you know, which spawned this conversation, and I still have some kind of fundamental questions about how formal verification works. Two terms they brought up. One was the prologue-like Boolean um, satis, uh, satisfiability. Um, mm -hmm. So sat. Um, Yep. Uh, theories. Uh, so there's, I know prologue. I, that was just something, you know, we were taught yep. in college, you know, this is a thing. I never used it again, but hey, you know, at least I played with it. Um, so I understand that building up of facts and using that to say whether or not um, uh, this statement is true or false, right? Uh, I get that. Uh, but they, they dropped a new term on me. And I was hoping maybe you could get a little deeper into that term for me. Um, and that is a uh, satisfiability modulo theories. Mm -hmm. um, what are those? And how oh. do they make this possible? This formula? Uh, that, that is really deep in the reads. Look, um, so there's, there's a lot of questions about, about sort of, uh, so what, what, what does this, we say that formal verification is, is a verification of proof, right? So these sort of questions get into the heart of, you know, what is that proof? What, what type of data makes up of that proof, right? Um, and there are two, two sort of opposing, but maybe, or two sides of the same coin, possibly, uh, of these uh, automated deduction systems versus interactive uh, proof assistance, right? And in the automated deduction system, what you do is you write a theorem and you say to the machine, try to find a proof for it. And you walk away and you come back and maybe it says, yes, I found a proof or, or no, no, I wasn't able to find a proof, or or maybe a third case. Your, your proof, your theorem is wrong. Here's a counterexample, right? Right. And, but the point is that it's once you write down the theorem, it's entirely automated, right? On the other side of the coin, we have these interactive uh, uh, proof assistants, where you write down the theorem and and you're staring at the screen and it says goal your theorem, and you just type in a bunch of commands, which basically create a logical deduction to reduce that goal to another program with you know another simpler goal or maybe it's splitting the goals up and and having several goals to solve simultaneously and you go through this long arduous process of, of interacting with the the software to develop a proof and eventually eliminate your goal and all your intermediate goals and then you've proven your, your theorem right and you can sort of see how these are, are very different um, uh, interactions with with formal verification right so I've done a lot of work with the interactive theorem improving, not a lot of work with the automated theorem improving. Um, and, and it's sort of true that uh, in principle, these two systems can be uh, used together, right? So when you're doing your interactive theorem prover, you might get down to a statement that you know that your automated theorem prover can solve, right? So you just hand it off to an automated theorem prover to figure out the proof for you. And it comes back and inserts all that data uh, in, your, in, your, in your proof for you. And you, you go on. And sort of on the flip side, uh, when you're trying to use an automated theorem prover, from what I understand, is that you get to these points where it says, I couldn't figure out how to prove this. And then you sort of have to manually break up it into sort of little sub 
theorems that it can it can prove, and then given the knowledge of these subtheorems that it can prove, maybe it can figure out that main theorem that you're trying to prove, right? So there, there are sort of two approaches from these two sides to solving the same problem, and uh, and the truth is somewhere in the middle in in practice, I guess. All right, so you you were talking about satisfiability, right? So satisfiability is just one of these uh, powerful automated uh, theorem proving uh, uh, things, right? So the automated theorem proving people are always trying to like increase the scope of what they can automatically prove in a reasonable amount of time, uh, and uh, and and uh, and if we're lucky, the the interactive theorem prover people are going to pick up those tools that the automated theorem people. Uh, figure out for us and use them in applications of, of interactive theorem proving. Sorry, my mic was off. So how does it, I, I'm sorry, could you say that again? How does it differentiate between the Boolean? I'm not sure if I quite fully got that yet. Um, so what can one do that the other cannot? Um, so my vague understanding, and I'm far from an expert here, is that, that it allows you to reason uh, to, to automatically do deductions under some sort of equational hypotheses. And it's very technical and I'm not an expert and I probably shouldn't use oh, it at okay. all. <laughs> no problem. That's fair. That's actually a fair statement. Like, I mean, I, like I'm not either. I'm trying to explore this stuff and understand it um, just on a surface level because, I, you know, that's not my field, but I like to know things. And, um, you know, that was one thing that struck me is that um, they were using a different model. And when they described how they were proving stuff to me, it was like, oh, this is very similar to like, you know, you know, VSAT, like it was, it was very much like, you know, yeah. this is true. But actually then when I thought about it more, it's like, it's actually finding the specific case where it fails. And instead of going through all possible branches of, of, of uh, things and like, like fuzzing would, you know, wouldn't do, but like, you know, the, you know, basically exploring all possible areas and doing a brute force on it. Um, it's actually able to deduce exactly where it fails. And that, that to me is just like, yeah, so fascinating. And I, I want to understand it, but I don't know if it's in my grasp yet. And I was hoping that maybe that that would lead me in that direction. I was I was at a, a at a, a very nice talk uh, a year or two ago at uh, uh, I, I forget the name of the conference, uh, some sort of formal verification programming languages conference, and they had this uh, presentation of a nice system uh, that uh, could actually always it always would produce either a counterexample or a proof, right? And the way, way it works is that it restricted the language, uh, sort of the logical language. So it strips out, you know, you write logic with universal for all quantifiers or existential for all quantifiers. And they had a bunch of restrictions on the language so that you could only piece together certain phrases that would be allowed in, in this thing, right? Uh, so the cost was it became very awkward to state your, 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 your theorems, right? Because you had to phrase it in terms of this, this weird language. Uh, this restricted logical language, right? But it had this benefit that it would always succeed or it would always come up with a counterexample, uh, which was very useful. They, they had some applications to consensus uh, systems and, and verifying raft and these other consensus systems. Wait, uh, you brought up raft. Wait a minute. So like, I don't know, that to me is like one of those things um, that just is kind of uh, also fascinating to me. Uh, do you have a lot of background in consensus mechanisms at this point? No, no, and 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 so so the simplicity work that I'm doing is on on sort of smart contracting, right? But the right. same, of course, the same formal verification applies to more than just the smart contracting. Right. The entire 
say, Bitcoin um, uh, consensus mechanism can and should be formally uh, defined, and so that and and ideally we could reason about the implementation of of the of the entire uh, set of consensus rules for Bitcoin, right. including. And, and, and so that's something that kind of like triggers me in, a, in another direction is that there are broader implications to writing languages like this. Um, in that database transactions uh, themselves have the same similar sets of problems um, when done at scale. Um, and uh, and I'm not just talking about SQL, I'm also talking about just like your Cassandra clusters and stuff like, yeah, they could do uh, some consistency, but you know, and they do checking, but there's this whole verification process of, of how the code is actually operating on those systems. It, can this language apply to other systems than just a blockchain? Uh, there's some potential here, right? I mean, but it's definitely the case that simplicity uh, is is designed with this particular application in mind, right? So it's not necessarily the most efficient language, right? Because uh, we're expecting very small programs to be executed on, on, on the blockchain because it's such an expensive resource. And the design of simplicity uh, uh, is, is, is such that, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't know. It's sort of completely architecture independent, right? It doesn't know anything about standard machine integers or anything like that. Uh, so it's a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit away from the hardware, right? So it's not designed for efficiency. Um, but it's it's a nice language. Any anywhere where you sort of want to transport small programs across the network um, and be able to. Uh, be able to to be executing these small programs that you come from untrusted sources, right? And so, Simplicity is designed for that those situations there. Uh, so, Simplicity has this uh, this very simple static analysis that you can do as part of the consensus mechanism. It'll tell you, you know, an upper bound on how many steps of execution it's going to take, an upper bound on how much memory it's going to need, and you can do all this analysis even before executing it, right? So, that's that's what part of the design of, of Simplicity. So, man, we covered quite a bit in this episode. Uh, is is there any are there any questions? Like we're trying to wrap up. Are there any questions that you would have liked us to ask you, um, or something you'd like to to kind of get off your chest, or something you think is important that we didn't get around to saying? Or do you want to talk about Blockstream and what you guys are up to these days? Uh, uh, that'd be great too. Well, yeah. I, so let, 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 let's talk about a little bit about how how Simplicity is coming along, right? So we have uh, a GitHub repository. Uh, we have the uh, implementation. We sort of have an implementation of Simplicity in, in Haskell, which is sort of like a, a language where you can develop uh, Simplicity programs and try it out. We have an implementation in the Cock Proof Assistant, which is the interactive proof assistant uh, that I use. Uh, it has the formal semantics of the Simplicity language. We have the proof of correctness of the SHA-256 compression function. Um, uh, in in the Haskell version, we have an implementation of Schnorr signature verification, right? And one of the upcoming steps will be to do a proof of correctness of the Schnorr implementation in the in the Cock Theorem Prover. Uh, and if currently we have a, a branch where we're doing a development of an interpreter written in C, uh, and the reason why we're implementing it in C is because A C is very compatible with. Uh, with C++, so it's something that we can fork into Bitcoin or our Liquid or Elements projects very easily. Um, and the verifiable C project at Princeton 
uh, is something that we want to leverage to actually prove that our C interpreter of the simplicity language is correct. Right? So we have big plans there of connecting the uh, formal definition of the simplicity language in Coq with the interpreter written in C using this verifiable C project uh, from Princeton, uh, part of their verify verified software tool chain, VST. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll get that C implementation done soon. We'll first implement it in the elements sidechain so people can sort of run their own experimental development uh, sidechain uh, and develop uh, and learn about simplicity there. Uh, and if we're successful there, hopefully we'll be able to put it into our liquid sidechain, which is which is a real uh, existing Bitcoin sidechain where you can actually transact uh, Bitcoin and other assets. Uh, and then we'll have uh, the power of simplicity for making these, these smart contracts on liquid. Uh, and then further in the future, hopefully we can prove that the uh, we prove the simplicity interpreter is in fact correct and meets the specification. Uh, we'll be in a position to take all this uh, this use in liquid and the formal verified software and bring it to the Bitcoin people and say, how about we consider an integration in uh, in, in Bitcoin? And uh, we have we have a few tricks up our sleeves that that might bring simplicity to um, to Bitcoin a little bit sooner. So, but I'm going to have to leave that as a surprise for for later. Oh, oh come on! Do you want to hint at it even a little bit? Show then. <laughs> come on, give us a little taste. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just saying that you know you might you might see simplicity operating on Bitcoin uh, without having to implement it in Bitcoin uh, sometime in the future. And it's very, very, very early stage, very, very theoretical. Early stage, right? Very yeah. theoretical, right? But yeah, but uh, if it works out, it'd be good. Promising that 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 uh, that we could see simplicity operating with with Bitcoin uh, sooner than than you would you would expect. Well, I, I'm excited to hear that news slash evaluate how that operates outside of like doing it the way you just said you were going to do it. <laughs> uh, how can people like outside of the, the places you just mentioned reach out and learn more? Um, right. So if you, we have, we have our simplicity is under the elements repo in GitHub. So it's github.com slash elements project slash simplicity. Uh, and you can find our code there. You can uh, uh, reach out to me uh, at my email address, rconnor at blockstream.com, uh, if you're more, if you want to have some questions about that. Um, and uh, yeah, actually, what I'm really interested in is, is that because Simplicity is such a low level language, I would love to get sort of a front end for Simplicity that compiles down to Simplicity. And the nice thing about this is that it's not consensus critical, right? So we could have multiple different competing front yeah. ends for, for simplicity, sort of analogous to uh, Solidity and the EVM, right? We need some sort of front end language that compiles down to simplicity. Uh, ideally, we give it formal semantics and prove that the translation from whatever higher level language down to simplicity is correct. And I would love to get some sort of uh, some people interested in working on that sort of project. Can you just out of curiosity before we wrap up? Uh, can you leverage other languages that exist like LLL? Is that is it like three L or L? I never heard it actually. It's just it's just LLL. Okay, yeah, three yeah LLL is uh or some other intermediate language like Julia or or something. 
Yeah, like, uh, do you think that's even uh, possible to just leverage something that's already out there and have that just compiled uh, or break down to this? Uh... It might not be impossible, but Simplicity uh, has a lot of restrictions that enable this sort of static analysis I was talking about. It, yeah. it has no unbounded loops, right? Right, All loops are bounded in Simplicity, right? Um, uh, which also means that Simplicity always terminates, uh, which is a very sort of nice feature to have over here, right? But I think Simplicity is, is sort of different enough that uh, it's useful to to come up with a, a brand new intermediate language. So I'd like to see see what people can come up with. Outstanding. So, uh, let's, let's go ahead and wrap it up, Colin. Did you have something you really want to say? Yeah, I want to give a shout out to. Uh, so we just we 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 just opened a donations section uh, for uh, you know uh, hashing it out. Uh, we run this show pretty much um, mostly. You know, we have some donations and some sponsorships. And they pay for, they keep the lights on, but we'd like to grow the network, obviously. Um, this is this is a passion project for pretty much everybody involved. Um, this is not our full-time job. So, you know, we have a, uh, we have a uh, donations uh, page set up. Hold on, what is that called? Um, it is donate.hashingitout.stream. And uh, we actually got our first donation today while we were on the air, no less. Um, so, Yagunama, uh, who uh, also has his uh, Corey doesn't want me to say it, but it, he actually has his name on on um, on our Slack and, and told us to do this uh, that he was going to do this. His name's Michael Newman. He just gave our first donation to our uh, donation page, um, and uh, I just want to give a big shout out to him and thank him very much uh, for his uh, patronage. Um, and uh, yeah, I appreciate it if anybody else who who likes what we do uh, wants to put a, a dollar in the tip jar, that'd be great. Um, that is donate.hashingitout.stream. And uh, it's a leaderboard. So if you donate more than everyone else, you'll be at the top of the leaderboard and you can say you're better than everyone. So that's always good too. Uh, for those of you that <laughs> like the show, uh, hit the like button, share it on Twitter. You can find me at, at CorePetty on Twitter, Colin at, at Colin Foucher on Twitter. Uh, Russell, are you on Twitter? Or, or... I am not on Twitter. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, a true you can find him via the email you mentioned earlier. And uh, <laughs> share this with your friends. Pick, uh, share the episode. We really appreciate it. And uh, see you next time. Thanks, Russell. Thanks. Thanks.